Hi there, everybody. It is Friday, September 23rd, and this is your Game Life Podcast. Hello, hi. I am your host, uh, Chris Kohler. Uh, with me here in the studio is... Matt Peckham, uh, Time Magazine Games Critic. Hello, Chris. How hi, are Matt. You? And by, it, it, I'm very good. And by studio, I mean the internet. Um, but I, we are doing this through a Google Hangout. Um, so, uh, hi. Yes, I am still jet-lagged. I am still jet-lagged. Um, when did you get means- back? I got back on Monday um, from from Japan, from Tokyo Game Show, uh, and I am... And we're recording body, this on a my, Thursday. We're recording this on a Thursday, so my body is still kind of telling me, like, it's, it's okay, it's not bad, but I'm still kind of being told by my circadian rhythms that, like, maybe it's um, 4 o'clock in the morning, and maybe you should be totally asleep right now, um, but, but I'm all right, but I'm all right. It's- is it one of those things where you go over there and which way is better? You know how some people say it's better going one way and coming back it's the other. Better. Which way is better? So this is what you do if you go if you're going from the 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 west coast to Japan, which is not so bad in terms of you know jet lag, um, and in terms of the trip itself, which is like only like ten eleven hours. Um, it is it is better going to Japan. If you make the effort uh, to stay up until midnight on the night that you arrive uh, and, and a couple of nights thereafter, because if you if you get to Japan, people make this mistake. They go to Japan, uh, they get in at like three in the afternoon and uh, they get to about 7 p.m. and it's dark and they're like, oh, man, I'm so, so, so tired. I'm going to go to bed because uh, that should be fine. Then they go to bed. They wake up at two in the morning. And they're fully, completely wide awake. Like, at, like their body is like, it's noon, uh, and they can't get back to sleep. And they've got, like, hours and hours just sort of sitting in darkness. And then they get tired during the day. Um, I'm not saying jet lag doesn't affect me. I'm saying that what you really try to do is, do is, I mean, like, when I landed, I was just like, where is the party at? Who is drinking? Who is going out tonight? Because it's like, I need to go to a bar and, like, sit and drink with people and talk with people. And just attempt to keep myself up until midnight. Because then if I can stay up until midnight, my body will at least give me a good five hours of sleep. It'll at least keep me asleep for five, six hours before it wakes me up and says, you're awake now. Congratulations. And then you get up at like six or seven, which is not what that's. That's like being responsible. Like that's not that's like being a normal person, um, which I am not, you know. But when you get up at six or seven, you feel like, oh, okay, cool. Like. This is like what a lot of people do who are productive. Um, and so then it's okay. Coming back is coming back is not good. Coming back is not good because you're you're really, really tired like at noon or you know, two PM, super, super tired. Um, and then it can be very difficult to get yourself up in the morning because your body is telling you that it's it's literally it's time to go to sleep at the time that you're trying to wake up. Um, but it's okay, I'm alive, I'm back. <laughs> Yeah, I've never done. I've not yet done uh, Japan. I haven't been over to Tokyo. I have only. I've done. I've gone sort of, kind of the other way to Russia and and back, but not, not that way. And there were pauses. There were interludes between in Europe. So, right, right, right. So yeah. So you were. You no, know, to- I guess. I guess the thing to do is just travel by by uh, steamship. You know, everywhere you go, because then you'll never get jet <laughs> lag. Mark, Mark Twain, and then you can write a book about it. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, so Tokyo Game Show. So I'm jealous. I was there. I'm jealous. You were there. As did you, you, did you play be. the game? I'm 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 excited about Final Fantasy 15. Did you? I did actually. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so, 
So is it, it going to be terrible? Is it going to be brilliant? Not VR games I played. I don't know what Final Fantasy 15 is going to be like because the the demo is literally the first like half an hour of the game. Um, and so I know what the first half an hour of the game is. So I can say this about Final Fantasy 15. Let's run some stuff down. Number one, um, I'm really interested in the the way that the game starts itself because. Um, First of all, there is there is a flash forward. There, the game begins on a weird flash forward where you're in a throne room. There's a monster in the throne room. Everything's on fire, and all your characters are there, but they're all super old. They're very they're they're like middle aged versions of their, their their teenage character selves that are in the the full game. Um, and that only takes a couple of seconds. But then it goes to, and I wrote a whole piece about this, but it goes to a screen in which it has a a couple of very short paragraphs of text, and it's like, blah, 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 the people are waiting for a prophecy. Second paragraph, blah, 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 four four warriors now go out on a quest. And it's like, oh, it's like the intro to Final Fantasy 1. I mean, it's almost exactly the intro to Final Fantasy 1, which is where it starts off with a screen of text, talks about prophecy, talks about four light warriors showing up out of nowhere. Um... And then after that, it goes into a scene where Noctis, who is the main character, he's a prince, and his dad, the king, is in the throne room, the same throne room that we saw in the flash forward. But his dad, the king, is there, and the four characters are in the um, in the throne room, and the king is charging them with the quest that they're going to go out on, which is like the most classic RPG intro you imagine it's this it's drag it's not only final fantasy it's dragon quest ultima you know like you know it's how king's quest starts it's the the very classic thing so there's very very clearly an effort on the part of square enix i think to really go back uh to the old school final fantasies and try to craft something that's like that certainly in the in the intro um and so that gives me hope that they're really looking to older Final Fantasy games as the model. Um, and I'll tell you, like, I understood every word those people said in that opening in that opening line of dialogue. There was no falsy or lussy or uh, focus or anything. None of that. None of that baloney. No jargon. No made-up words. The only apostrophes were used to indicate possessive nouns. Um <laughs> It's and 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 really and and the, and the the intro moves like bam 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 like you know the king gives them the quest they jump they're they're pushing the the car breaks down and they're pushing the car along the road we see the logo we hear Florence and the machine sing Stand by Me we go to the car garage we meet Sid he he you know starts fixing the car his granddaughter is there and then they're like by the by you know it's gonna take a while to fix the car if you need to go make some money go kill some monsters and then you're killing monsters. And it's just like boom, boom, boom. Game starts, um, can, which is can, which is very interesting. Of course, of course. Go on. I just want to ask you a question. But but are they still are they still doing the crystal thing? Is this still about crystals? Are crystals still involved? Because this Nothing is something has, they haven't said anything in that first half an hour about crystals yet. Okay, okay. Because I'm I'm just curious because this is that thing that Final Fantasy does, and I've never entirely understood the the, the obsession with the crystals. Somebody who has written you know, a voluminous treatise on the Final Fantasies will, will no doubt tweet at us and explain. But uh, I always, when I think crystals, I always think about that weird 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s energy channeling new age movement. <laughs> so, yeah, right, right, you know, right. But I'm just curious if crystals somehow find their way it's back. It's not, I mean, story. I think the, uh, I, I, I think the ob- obsessiveness with it is really only because it was part of the original story. 
And then that's something that they carried forward because the Final Fantasy sequels were never linked via plot. They were linked via themes. They were linked via sometimes, you know, uh, they were linked via like creatures and they were linked via things like crystals and airships and stuff like that. And so those were sort of the essential elements of the and battle of fantasy battle systems, active, active, active turn. Oh, sure. From battle, a, from that sort from of thing. Yeah. Perspective, speaking yep. really along the lines of the, the, the stories. Um, and so that was just one of the things that they used. And I don't think that I, I hate to be the guy who says it doesn't mean anything, but it's not like there's it's not like there's any like. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure um, why why elemental crystals was was became so important. It could have sim- what I'm what I mean to say is it, it could have simply been a coincidence. It could have simply been something they came up with for the first game, and they liked it enough to just keep moving it forward. Um, sure. But you're right. I mean, you know, and again, so this is coming from the guy who wrote the article uh, titled something to the extent of "Final Fantasy is Dead." Um, and I think it did die. You know what I mean? I think that Final Fantasy kind of tried to keep chugging itself along. Um, and uh, with the Final Fantasy 13 series, which sold worse and worse and worse, you know, really just dug itself very deep into a hole. Um, and Final Fantasy 15, the more I hear about it, the more it seems to me that it at least represents um, a, a push from Square Enix to recognize that, like, they can't just keep going on doing what they're doing with Final Fantasy. And it really needs, like, a rebirth. It needs a refresh. Whether this game does it or not, I don't know at this point. Because, again, the, the, um, the, the demo was, was not very long. But it was very, very interesting to see how they structured the opening of the game how quick it was and how um, old school it was. They need they need to re- to really reboot the system. They need a Final Fantasy walking simulator where you go door to door selling crystals. That's what yes, I mean. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and there's got to be Moogles somehow. Yes, um, but no, so, it sounds, yeah, okay. was, so it sounds interesting. That still was good. I also played The Last Guardian, you know, just uh, on the subject of, like, major PlayStation 4 games in this holiday season. That oh, nobody please. knows if they're going to be any good or not. Please talk um, about this, because I didn't, I, I didn't get a chance to read your piece, but I saw, I think I caught your headline, and it was different. There, were, there was a lot of sort of negative reaction in the press, right? To, to, yes. Uh, and your, your, your headline was so interesting to me that I'm ashamed that I haven't read the piece yet, but oh. it was something like, take your time and yeah. play it slowly. And I, I thought... Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? That sounds interesting. So the so I I've now started to understand why I think this game spent a long time in development hell, or why there was such a disconnect between the concept for this game and being able to pull it off. Because it you have the the the, the structure of the Last Guardian is you sort of progress into a into a room into a kind of an area, and you have to figure out how you can get yourself. And, you know, very much like Eco, right? How do I get myself and my AI companion character, who in this case is gigantic um, dog bird cat, Trico, how do I get us both out of this room? Um, and uh, what, I have to, what I have to do in these situations is actually use Trico to do it, but you can't directly control him. And sometimes it's not about controlling him. It's about waiting for him to do the thing that you need him to do. Um, so there's one you know, part where he has to like jump up onto something in the room to put himself in a position um, where you then can climb up to a different ledge and then have the ability to jump off that ledge onto his fur and grab onto him and climb up him 
and get to his head, which is then you can jump to another ledge. That's a very basic type puzzle that you might do, right? But Trico doesn't just go into the room, see the ledge, jump there, and sit and wait for you. He's kicking around, he's going over here, he's going over there, and eventually, sometimes, he'll jump on the ledge by himself. But if you've got the camera pointed elsewhere, then you're, if you're trying to solve the puzzle all by yourself, you're not kind of watching what he's doing and observing his relationship to the room around you, you are going to not be able to solve the puzzle. And they really, I really got the sense that... Um, that we were being experimented on by Sony, uh, be- by them watching us play this game, because there were lots and lots of development team members, like just sort of hovering over everybody, like always seeming like they, they wanted to tell us what the solution is because they didn't want us to get stuck. But I think they, I think we were kind of guinea pigs. They really wanted to see how we would take this. And I kind of realized, and that's why I wrote this piece, like, you gotta, you just gotta chill out a little bit uh, and really try to observe your surroundings and not expect to make huge fast forward progress with each um with each puzzle because it really may it may it may take a lot of patience you might have to have patience for trico to like do the things that that you want him to do and i think the thing that people were getting people were getting negative about some of these puzzles because i think we really expect our video games to be like we don't expect there to be that analog fuzziness where sometimes a video game character doesn't do the thing you want him to do um and but that's that's what they're kind of trying to do to build the idea that that both the boy and Trico are sort of like living characters. So that I think is the fundamental sort of problem, the the the, the circle that it's trying to square. And I don't know how it's going to come out, but I do know this. I think this is the last game in this series. You know, I don't, I cannot imagine Ueda-san after all this with his own company now saying like, you know what, let's do a fourth you know, gigantic, massive game with a brand new concept in this eco Shadow of the Colossus Last Guardian series. Let's just keep going with that. Maybe we'll release it in 2028. Um, I feel like he'll probably start doing different things. Um, And so I don't want to rush this. You know, I just want to, I just want to try to enjoy it because there are are just a lot of these moments of beauty in this game um, already from the first couple of demos that I've played that I really like. Well, and I think to, to follow up on a point that I, I think I hear you making about your relationship to the game, your experience of it, it, it makes me think of something. I'm reading um, Dr. Ian Bogost's new book. Uh, what is it called? Play Anything. Um, and, uh, and I'm not finished with it yet, but I think one of the points he's making in that book is to try less to come to things with preconceived ideas about what they have to be to make you happy to fulfill something like i played ico i played shadow of the colossus and by god this is what i expect from the last guardian and and really try and look i mean it still may not work it still may not be agreeable but you know try and think about what the game is trying to do and it sounds like you were trying to do that you were you were saying okay so this is a little bit more like a i mean not tamagotchi here but it's a little bit more like Mm, a like mm -hmm. a like i need to be empathic with this giant friend i need to be watchful i need to be patient uh and and the experience is as much about that it's not just this puzzle solving game in a pretty environment which is how i think some people reduce the way they reduce uh, like like Ico and, and Shadow of the Colossus. Oh, it was this cool game. I got to climb around on these mythic creatures and mm. wow, dude. And, and that's <laughs> cool. I was one of those guys. Hey, I'm not, you know, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, with, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you all, but but try and maybe come at, you know, this is a game that's been, it's been 10 years, right? 
in right. development? Yeah, 10 yeah. years. I mean, so think about what's changed in the games industry in the last decade in terms of how we think about games. And, and, that, and, and that, I think, is one of its issues is that, um, I mean, I think what Phil Kohler said at Polygon is, you know, it feels like a PlayStation 2 game. Um, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it was designed, you know, in the at the tail end of the PlayStation 2 era. And we don't, I mean, that's that's kind of one of the, that's one of the problems I think that maybe Sony sees with this as far as, you know, being a accepted by people is that um we don't um we don't like uh puzzles in our AAA anymore you know mm. like with with remember i think i i might have mentioned this in my piece too but i mean remember god of war one like one of the bullet points of the first god of war was like challenging and tricky puzzles environmental puzzles for you to solve um and then that was total i mean by god of war 2 that was out of there because they they were just low they were lowest common denominatoring it um you know and as hard as they possibly could and and so the idea that sony is releasing this massive massively hyped game um that is just built around environmental puzzles in in 2016 is it's not necessarily bad for the last guardian um because i think luckily the indie game revolution and the witness and things like that are starting to normalize um the the puzzle gameplay again um but it's it's just weird it's like it, it very much is like a 2006 game being released in 2016 um but well, it would be it, it would be helpful. Totally understand that. I, I just I think it would be helpful, like for, for any more. The way I try and look at things is to not to try and pull the AAA filter off, and just say, you know, what is this? Is Grand Theft Auto Five a brilliant game, regardless of you know, or a horrible game, or some whatever it is in between, regardless of how much money was spent on it, and regardless of I mean, those things matter if you're doing you know if you're doing a a broader developer. Uh, cultural piece, but if you're just looking at the game, oops, if you're just looking at the game itself, uh, mm-hmm. you know, triple A, I don't know. Like, I would like to think people could come to The Last Guardian and care less about those 10 years and just look at what is it now? What is it today? And even, you know, visually, I mean, does it really look like a PS2 game? I, it all depends no. on how you look at it. I mean, I played... I, it doesn't, the, sorry, no, no, no. It doesn't look like a PlayStation 2 game, what, but, it, but it plays the, like a PlayStation 2 game. Oh, okay. Well, and that yeah, is, yeah, yeah. No, that it is looks, a distinction. Oh, oh, no, it looks great. Well, because I've, I've heard some people, I had seen at least some people complaining a little bit about the, the visuals, and I was thinking, well, God, you know, I mean, the game I'm going to talk about a little bit later, Virginia, uh, is stripped down, very bare, very sparely detailed and it's a beautiful game um Mm. and it's just a very different i mean i'm not saying that that maybe the aesthetic isn't partly because of the age of the game here but uh you know i don't know i just i'd like i'd like to think that people could come to this game and and judge it a little bit more on the basis of how it actually works today and less on their expectations based on 10 years of all this hype well then why don't you tell us about virginia because (laughs) i've heard nothing about it prior to today uh it's getting rave reviews um so well, it, it came. Up? Let me a little a little backstory really quick. I talked to Jonathan Burroughs, who is one of the creators, along with another gentleman named Terry Kenny, back in, and it almost became a piece for you, Chris, at Wired when I was doing some stuff for Wired. I interviewed them. God, how long has it been? It was back in 2014, I think, when they were just getting started, and they put out a brief sort of a montage. It was sort of like an alpha proof of concept demo. And uh, and that was how I heard about it because I saw a couple of indie sites, uh, or I shouldn't say indie sites, sites that tend to focus a little more on what we call indie games. 
and they referred to it as sort of a David Lynchian thing because the creators were comparing it to David Lynch. And I got interested because I'm a huge, I'm a David Lynch freak. If you saw my stuff downstairs, uh, uh, my uh, book collection downstairs, I have, I'm just, I'm, I've always been a huge Lynch fan. And, and he's not one who's often invoked in the games industry because he's, he's kind of a, a celebrated, I, I think I refer to him as a celebrated obscurantist. And I say that in a, in a very complimentary sense. <laughs> so one of my favorite movies of all time is Lost Highway, even though it's you know, pretty dark and, and nihilist and, and everything. But anyway, so Virginia, what is Virginia? It's, I guess, it, it, let, me, let me go reductive for a second, because uh, we've talked about other games like it. Everybody here has gone to the Rapture and uh, gone home and some of these others. They are somewhat tritely referred to in the industry as walking simulators. And that's kind of what Virginia is gameplay-wise. That'll get the message shorthand to, to, to you if you're li- you know, listening. I think, I think it was this weird pejorative thing that has become a take-back term, because I see everybody using it um as yep. as that shorthand and i think the i think the, the pejorative nature of it as you say i think is is kind of falling away it's like we need we need something and i think there has to be i think people who are making games like this have a sense of of humor um about the 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 the, the pros and cons if you will of of making a game of that nature yeah but i see everybody using it well, so here's the here's the interesting thing about that. So now imagine a walking simulator where you have control in a 3D environment and you're able to walk around and look at things and events are happening, music is playing, um, you know, you have a, you're directed by the interface to, to do and look at certain things. And then suddenly the camera cuts and it's a smash cut jump and you're suddenly in a completely different scene and you have really no idea how you got there. Uh, this is some of what happens when you play Virginia. Let me back up and say you play as a as a sort of young FBI agent who's just started. Here's the story. They don't even give it to you directly. Like there is no there is no narrative. There is no no text delivery there, and then there is, there are no voices and nobody speaks. Everything is implied. Everything is body language, gesticulation. The environments sort of tell the story. It's a found story, but there aren't even audio logs. You know, you're not going along and finding audio logs and then listening to somebody in you know in a Bioshockian sense. So you start playing this game. You're a you're a new FBI agent. You've been assigned to uh, go looking for a, a boy who's gone missing, and your partner in the case. You're also assigned on the sly to keep an eye on her, and you're not exactly sure why at first. And so that's about as much as I want to tell you, because <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. But events then proceed in a very David Lynchian sense. Um, I, I should also say, in, in a little bit of a Fargo-like sense as well. If you watched, if you've been watching the uh, uh, the TV series Fargo, it has it has that kind of feel to it at, at points too. Very much this idea that. That is there something supernatural going on? Is there is there a sci-fi thing going on here? But but it's never explicitly laid out. Is it symbolic? Is it metaphorical? Um, and then what's interesting about it, because lots of people are telling stories like this now, right? And and sometimes I don't like it. Sometimes I don't think it works as much. I wasn't quite as big a fan of Firewatch as others. I wasn't as big a fan of everybody here's gone to the rapture as others. Uh what I find interesting about what variable state is doing is they cut out a lot of the filler. Okay. So instead of, so this is a walking simulator with all of the boring walking parts elided, I mean, cut. So, so there are, you know, you'll start walking down a stairwell and then it will jump cut to the basement and then, you know, and then it'll jump cut. So, so you have a sense of presence and atmosphere and where you're at and motion, but then it just gets you right to the interesting stuff. 
And then you spend the interfaces. I love the interface. Um, you, you pan around the environment, and as soon as you find a hotspot, and there's only usually one or two hotspots in a scene, it changes to a circle, and then you move closer in the direction of the circle, it changes to a diamond, and then you interact. And that's it. That's it. So it's, th there's a game element here in that you're, you can collect things, and you're trying to you know, find clues. You know, you're searching the environment for clues, but it's really kind of a new way, I think. I mean, like I could imagine David Lynch doing this and calling it an interactive film. I could imagine, uh, you know... That sort of that sort of approach to it. Um, it isn't necessarily it's co it's inhabiting multiple worlds. And I found myself going, God, you know, am I gonna am I gonna wish that the new season of Twin Peaks that's coming out next year were interactive like this? Because I actually find that I maybe prefer this mode of of having a story. Like this might become a preferred mode for me, um, as opposed to just doing a received thing where I'm watching it on a television. Uh, it's just so interesting. You can find out so much. They managed to pack and condense so much information about the story into these environments. They're so interesting. Um, and then, you know, they're good storytellers. I should back up and say that. You could have a really interesting idea and, and bad storytellers. Uh, Jonathan Burroughs and Terry Kenny are just absolutely terrific. Uh, they've told a, f a phenomenal story, I think. I still don't fully understand what's going on. I've played through it twice now. Um, uh, on the second playthrough, all of these little light bulbs are going off, and that was a sign to me that uh, that they had done something, you know, really, really interesting. It was resonating with me. So yeah, that's that's Virginia. I think it's ten bucks. It's for uh, PC, Mac, PlayStation Four, and Xbox One. Uh, it's available today. Uh, uh, today's Thursday, September twenty second, I think. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. Um, so yeah, Chris, you you should give it a try. I mean, just a just a single playthrough is maybe all of an hour and a half. A single walk through yeah. everything. So sure. I mean, are you a Lynch fan at all, or are you one of these? Uh, not not really. But I'm <laughs> not really. Fan. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, you would like you know, you, hashtag dad life, man. That ha hour and a half gaming experience sounds good to me. It's not. I should say it's not a, like Lynch can sometimes be obscure to the point of of really seeming almost um what's the word pretentious for some mm -hmm. people you know they mm -hmm. watch it and they're like oh dear god you know that this the symbolism is is so abstract here uh it's not like that it's not that uh, you know it, it uses a lot of it there are homages to lynch that make it feel more like a lynch film like there's a sequence in a bar where you're listening to a band and the music is I mean, it sounds like the intro to Twin Peaks. It's very deliberately mm -hmm. like a, a, a Julie Cruz um, and uh, Angelo Badalamenti, who's the music composer for Twin Peaks and pretty much all of Lynch's films, sort of a pastiche of that stuff. So if you like that, cool. if you want to mm -hmm. feel like you're back in that environment, uh, Virginia, mm -hmm. good, can't recommend it high, highly enough. Wow, there you go. So, so um, Tokyo, did more stuff in Tokyo. Did VR stuff in Tokyo. Um, the uh, well, So I played Res Infinite. Oh, um, uh, the VR version? The VR version, there, yeah. Yeah, VR, on, yeah, on yeah, PSVR? yeah. So, the thing is with Res Infinite, got to always underline this. Whole thing is playable on your TV. Whole thing is playable in VR. Um, it's, it's both TV and VR. Um, it is a, you know, it's, a, it's another high definition. You know, it's like the most beautiful version of Res. Um, or you can play it all in VR. And there's Area X, uh, and that is playable on your TV and in VR, although it's really designed for VR. It's like, it's the first new res level ever. Um, and it allows you to free roam um, as you're, as you're kind of 
going through the levels and boost and stop and start rather than always traveling down a tunnel really quickly. And that's the primary difference. Um, it's about a 15 to 20 minute level. It's really great. It's done. It's instead of like vector style graphics, it's all done with particle effects. It's beautiful. You know, it's like just being in this, um, you know, wonderful virtualized world uh, with PlayStation VR. I thought it was, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, um, I think, I think yeah. of all the PSVR games, uh, Res is the one that I am. I mean, it, it may be one of one of it's one of the few that I am genuinely excited to be able to play with PSVR. I mean, we're almost here, by the way. PSVR is what? It's October eleventh, thirteenth. Yeah, it's weeks. Matter of weeks. Matter of weeks. Are you VR. are you Shit. excited? Are you excited for PSVR or are you VR'd out after Vive and Oculus? <laughs> and- yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited to play Res. I think it's really a content thing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm excited for the exclusive content that is coming to PlayStation VR, which I think is going to be good. Um, but I, I'm not, like, super excited to have, like, a third VR headset in the house, like, purely about VR. But I bet a lot of people are because this is gonna this is really gonna be their entry point into into virtual reality for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's uh it's gonna be interesting to see what Sony does uh with it um as we head into the PS4 Pro phase of the whole whole process. So yeah, yeah. I'm ready. Bring it on. Did you do any other PSVR stuff at at uh, Tokyo? Yeah, I mean, they had a whole bunch of stuff in their booth, which I walked around. So, I mean, I did the Call of Duty Infinite Warfare VR experience, which was not much of an experience. I mean, it's literally it's flying around in space um, in a very brief demo of flying around in space and shooting things. It definitely was fun. I, You know what I actually kind of liked more about Call of Duty VR was less about the flying around and shooting, but it was when the other ship at the beginning was like, oh, okay, now follow me. Um, and it was sort of like Star Fox where the other ship would sort of drop, um, not rings, but like squares in space that you had to fly through. And that part I felt was more fun, like following along another ship and like, you know, orienting yourself so you were flying through these rings. Like I actually kind of enjoyed that. And in fact, I also played some more Eagle Flight, uh, Ubisoft's VR game, which did you play that? The one, that, the one that made me sick, and that the that the the developer, oh, no. the, the, the the creator, the creative lead, I can't remember his name, came came out and said, "Oh no 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 no!" You know, I must be in a very this beautiful French uh, French accent that I wish I could do. Um, said something sort of like, "Oh no no no!" You know, it's not it's not us. We've <laughs> we've compensated for all of this, and I thought, "No no well," and then I felt bad. I felt huh. like you know huh. something wrong with me with my. Oh with my visual information processing system. But no, I heard that from other people too, but I loved it. I mean, I think Eagle Flight yeah, was the game so that I most enjoyed. I just, Eagle I just Flight, made it very sick. Eagle Flight, I mean, it basically played two uh, missions of Eagle Flight, which actually the, the Japanese voiceover for Eagle Flight is really nice. It's a soothing, soothing middle-aged man um, telling you all about, you know, eagles and stuff. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's very, it's very calming. Um, but the first, the second mission was about catching fish, which I thought was... It's okay. But the first mission was just flying through rings. And it was just super fun to three-star this thing by just pouring on the speed, you know, going nuts, like zooming, you know, underneath uh, archways and up and over buildings and around corners, flying through rings in, in VR. I feel like the, the two times I flew through rings in VR were like two of the best experiences that I, that I had at the, at the show. Well, I loved um, I loved in Eagle Flight. My favorite thing when I played it uh, at the Oculus event back in San Francisco was at GDC la- earlier this year was the uh, capture the flag stuff. 
Did you do that? The capture the flag where you're you're playing three versus three, I think it was, yes. and you, you have to go get the rabbit and take it back. Yeah, to the but they they didn't have that at the Tokyo Game Show. They really just had like some very quick single player uh, demos all set up for people to kind of cycle through. Yeah. Okay. Actually, it wasn't even cycle through so much as I mean, I think if you were an attendee at Tokyo Game Show, you waited in line. And then you said which VR demo you wanted to play. And then you played that one VR demo. And then I think you had to leave at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which was quite a line. It was quite a line. They actually, Sony even had a separate PlayStation VR um, kiosk or th- a whole PlayStation VR booth set up in another hall. So there were actually two places you could go that had, that had all of the PSVR demos, um, which, of course, both had huge lines. What was uh, what we've talked about TGS in the past in terms of its like relevance and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Nintendo's historical non presence and all these kinds of things. How did having been in 2016 does it feel as vibrant and relevant and alive? Uh, you know, is this a is this a slightly down or lesser year? I mean, what what's your sense um, from an industry standpoint? This uh, this was a slightly better year, I think, for T- for TGS just because of all of the VR that was going on. People are excited about VR. Um, I think people are excited to try it in that trade show environment because they're not necessarily going to have it at home. So there was a lot of cool VR happening, and so there was just there was more to do in that sense. Um, you could probably spend two days just doing VR demo after VR demo. There was you know there were like there was there were some companies that were trying out like VR crossed with big sort of like arcade controllers so like vr horseback riding and you're on a horse um you know that that kind of thing um there was less in the way of like massive giant booths dedicated to um mobile games that you couldn't play um there were certainly massive giant booths dedicated to mobile games but i mean it seemed like there was more i don't know i mean there was there was not as much to do at this show, but I think that the excitement of VR and all the different VR headsets um, lent it more content this time around, which was which was good. And it also was just like I don't know, like Tokyo Game Show now starts to become like oh, like you might see you know some some crazy Japanese you know ideas again uh, because they're here with. Um, they're here with virtual reality now, come up with some weird like tech demo type stuff that maybe it's only going to be at Tokyo Game Show and you're never going to see it anywhere else. So um, Square Enix actually did, uh, it's called Project Hikari and it's like a manga viewer in VR where you know, you hear the narration of a manga, of a comic, and the panels kind of pop up and you can drag the panels around and move them. And then sometimes the story happens within the panels. Sometimes the panels are 2D. Sometimes the panels are 3D and you can kind of move your head and look inside them. Um, so for a person who likes reading comics, it was like a really cool um, conceptual, like this is something we could take comics and we could make VR experiences out of them. Like uh you know, tech demo or proof of concept, really. Um, so that's the sort of thing I think will work at at shows like Tokyo Game Show um, as a see, first look. Did you see, was the balance of VR, was it still, you know, plug-in high-end, or did you see a lot of, like, Gear VR stuff, t- style VR stuff there going were, on? There were certainly booths. There was a booth um, that had, like, a... It was, like, a schoolgirl RPG, and it was called Alternative Girls. And it was, like... I did notice a lot on that note of, like, of VR that lets you live in the world of anime, which I think is kind of... It might, you know, if VR takes off in Japan, that'll be a big use of the, of the, of the concept, right? But they had their booth, and it was for um, cell phone VR. And so they basically had their own... And I, th- I think you will see a lot of this. Cell phone VR games 
where they make Google Cardboard and that's custom to the to the game with the game's logos and, and characters printed on the piece of Google Cardboard. And that's how you experience it. And maybe you go out and you buy that uh, to, to play the game with or, or something like that. Um, so that, yes, yeah, certainly there was some low-end stuff as well. Persona 5? I just have to ask, did you get a chance to do anything with that or was that... I didn't... I, I, on I, I don't know enough about the Persona series to get much out of a demo, but it was, I mean, it was there. It was like Atlas and Sega, and, and they had a huge booth together, and it was cleanly divided between Persona 5 and uh, Yakuza 6. I think I think you would like, I mean, just given your cultural background it. with, oh, you've tried it, okay, and just maybe didn't do it for you? I mean, because it has, you know, the whole, there's the nope. dungeon grinding element, of course, and everything stuff, nope. but it's so... Culturally, all right. I'll stop. I'll stop I trying to sell you on your own. Po- sell after, you on your own after podcast. Like, <laughs> after trying to like play this game for like two hours and just literally just paging through, uh, banal dialogue in a in a classroom, I was just like, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. And it was actually people telling me like, this is the best game ever made by humans, and I was like, nope, can't play this game. Sorry, <laughs> it's an acquired taste. Hey, life's look, too I, short. I, life's I, life's too short. I went to through a thing. Try I to play went, games. Yeah, I went through a thing long ago where I thought the Final Fantasy games were. I mean, decades ago, where I mean, I was an Ultima guy, right? I was an Ultima guy. I was uh, a D and D guy, and now I'm the complete opposite. Now I really can't stand D and D. I could, I could, you know, live without another with with another gold box, you know, inspired uh, SSI inspired thing. Um, and and I much prefer the Japanese uh, games, the, the the Final Fantasies, for instance, certainly the Persona series just because they're so um they 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 get me outside of my conventional western headspace i want to be careful here about (laughs) about stereotyping um but i think that's it's for the same reasons i like an author Uh, people might know china mayville because they over in the new weird space because they are so um they're, they feel subversive uh, to someone like me who's grown up, you know, okay, there's a dungeon and there's an orc and an elf and, a, and you know, all that kind of stuff. There was a point, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago where I really realized that um, sort of stylistically that the Japanese were, were doing things that were, you know, very, very interesting to me. So I don't know. I think, I think you should circle back and we should have a good conversation when Persona 5 comes out. I mean, I have to get you to try it. Yeesh. So, all right. Well, Chris we'll doesn't sound convinced. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 de- uh, well, I, I don't want to steal any I, more TGS stuff, but I was no, going to ask I you about I, Destiny. I, I pretty much covered it. Oh, yeah. Space Channel 5, um, which was very much a uh, very small, short uh, proof of concept kind of demo um, of, of Space Channel 5 in, uh, in VR. That happened. That was at the HTC booth. It's, it's like being developed in, in, by, um, grounding which is a company that's made up of former sega developers who worked on space channel 5 um in in partnership with kddi i think the japanese uh like phone company um so hopefully that spins up into something bigger it would be nice to see that become a full game so Hmm. maybe some people with some some cash money can come in and uh and fund that because that would be fun uh so that's yeah i think that's about all i really wanted to talk about Tokyo game show it was good I'm jealous. I'm still jealous. One of these days, Chris hmm. Kohler, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that Wired uh, uh, sends you over. They, do they send you over? Does Wired yeah. actually send you over? Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. Good on you, Wired. I'm, I <laughs> am super cheap to send to Japan because I take the train everywhere. Um, I, eat, I eat curry every day. Um, 
I like I'm super cheap to send. I find the cheap business hotels. Like I, I actually really do a, uh, I do a, I do a pretty tight uh, Japan trip. Um, not because I'm trying to skimp on money, but because I know where all the deals are. Oh man! So I need to come talk to you if I'm gonna if I'm gonna talk my way into doing this next year with time. Don't so. don't if you're gonna do it next year with time. I mean, I'll just tell you like don't don't take cabs. Like that's that's a great way to just like completely balloon your expense report with spending like thirty dollars every time you need to get somewhere. Where in Japan you can really you can spend like two bucks and get anywhere in Tokyo. That is an exaggeration, but it's basically true. Well, and you you stay in actual hotels, right? You didn't Airbnb your way or whatever the no. And is. I'm always shocked with people who air. I mean, you Airbnb for E3, but what happened? You your Airbnb got got canceled, right? Well, that's that's the thing. That's what I'm thinking about. Is that I had this this I had this phenomenally cheap uh, hotel and everything for, right. for E3. It was everything was wonderful. I was I was saving all this money, and then all of a sudden, uh, the person, the host, backed out the night before I was supposed to fly to E3, and we had events that morning. And so I ended up spending like five times because, <laughs> I mean, imagine booking the night before. And Airbnb was very helpful, to be fair. They, they helped me find a place, but they didn't help me find a cheap place because cheap places didn't exist at that point. So Right. Uh, yes, so, so be very exactly. careful, I guess I would say, uh, be, you know, or I am very wary now about using uh, a service like that. Yeah. So no, I do not Airbnb. No, there's just there's 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 inexpensive business hotels that are everywhere. Um that are not I mean, I think a lot of think a lot of people look at it and they're just like, Well, I should stay at the Hilton and I should no, you really don't do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't I'm see I'm with you. I'm when I go places here in the in the US, Super Eight, why because why not? You know, why why mm-hmm. why stay other than Super Eight? You're not there to stay in the hotel, right? You're there to sleep and then get the, hell, get the hell out of there. Certainly not in Japan. <laughs> or I come back, pass out, wake up in the morning and leave immediately. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And not that there and the thing is the worst Japanese hotel is really nice. And the and the you know the the the, uh, the 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 most dangerous place in Japan is really safe. Like there's no there's really very little to worry about. Yeah. By the way, I should I should say in case Super Eight happens to listen to your podcast, I'm not contrasting not Super Eight in a negative way. Right. Um, Super Eight is actually a really nice hotel. That's the thing. Like the the the, the levels of niceness going up to a three or four hundred dollar ridiculous Hilton whatever Hyatt yeah. hotel. Sorry, Hilton and Hyatt, but um, just not worth it. For me right. personally. So, so anyway, you played uh, Destiny: Rise of Iron. <sighs> yeah, well, <laughs> I am trying to play Destiny: Rise of Iron. I okay. I made I made the mistake. I made a big. What is it? Uh, Joe Blue says I've made a terrible mistake. Uh, yeah, I made a I terrible play, mistake. Sure. I played I played the Taken King last year. I played I played the heck out of the Taken King last year. And got to level 40 and got my light level up to where I thought it was pretty good. And then, because we have to look at other games, didn't play Destiny again for a year. And now here comes Rise of Iron, and I've got it, and I'm ready to go. And I go move my cursor over uh, the day that it comes out onto the uh, to the first mission, and it says, Sorry, buddy, your gear sucks. <laughs> you, need, uh, you need better gear. So, more politely than that. And so I realized so before that... Before you could even play... My light like, level was you about. Really a, shouldn't do this. Yeah. So in Destiny, if you haven't played it, you have a character level, and it currently tops out at forty. And then you have a light level, and the light level is an average of all of your gear. It's just a way of reflecting how good your attack and defense values are um, uh, with all of your your equipment. And but to get good equipment, you have to go out and do raids and strikes and 
blah, 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 blah. And I had not done any of that. I leveled up, I finished the story and, and then moved on. But my light level was about 100 points too low. And 100 points too low in Destiny is about another two or three days of full-on busy work, unless you're a Destiny you know, pro. In which case, I'm sorry, I'm not you. I'm a moron. If you're a Destiny a pro, you're already you're already there. You know, you've already yeah, gotten everything taken care of. Yeah, you're, you're listening to this, and you're going, uh, buddy. There's a YouTube video or five I could point you at and and, and take care of you. And I I get it. I oh get yeah, it. yeah, yeah. True. There there are there are fast leveling guys out there, but I'm I'm uh, I've been trying for the last uh, day or day and a half just to get myself up to the point that I can experience the first mission. So I did. I actually played the first mission. Uh, and it's hard to, I can say this, it's hard to see, uh, as far as differentiation, um, I've heard most of the good stuff is in the back end of Rise of Iron, so I'm not seeing it yet. It's fine, you know, it looks like all of the other Destiny levels I've played, it's very much, uh, you know, a matter of going through, somebody narrates, uh, you know, some some giant thing with a with a yellow colored health bar that's going to take you, you know, 25 minutes of whittling away. Uh, pops up on the screen and you have to take out all of the minions as they're running around and while also taking out the bad guy to, to solve the mission and move on to the next thing. It's, it's so far feels very much like uh, pretty much all the rest of destiny I've played, which is not to be negative about destiny. I actually find that taking the break and coming back to it, it's really enjoyable. I actually really enjoy, you know, I'll play it. I'll play something like destiny or doom or, or call of duty. And by the time I'm finished, I'll be like, okay, I don't need to do this anymore for for a year, but then I take a year off. But then you can come back in a year. Yeah. And it actually, you, you appreciate the, what am I trying to say? Or you appreciate the level of the attention to detail and finessing. You know what I mean? Like the, the, you appreciate all of the fine mechanical. You yeah. Know, and it's you know, probably, you know who, it's probably better and more satisfying maybe than the yearly franchise. You know what I mean? Of like, Oh, okay. Assassin's Creed. Okay. Yeah. I guess I'll, I guess I'll play like another one of these all the way from the beginning again, but versus like, Oh, okay. Well, there's more destiny content. Well, I already, this is like, it's, it's a game I've been playing. I already, I already have this, this character and it's really more of a continuation than a restart. So the person that we, really should have here and unfortunately she couldn't be with us today um is jake and jake is like 100 points higher than i am in destiny um you know has like i don't know most of the trophies and i think that she would have a lot she could speak much more eloquently to the game than i can so jake we miss you you need to come back and talk about rise of iron (laughs) Uh, i think she'll be back i think she will Yes, so, yes. Yes. Um, so uh, I think that probably just about does it for the old Game Life podcast this week. Um, Matt, thanks for thanks for being here as always. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. Always a pleasure. So I definitely want to say, because again, I'm in full-on shill mode. Matt can see this on video, um, but you guys can't at home. But I am I'm holding, I literally just got this this morning, the first, first copies off the press of uh, the new version of Power Up, How Japanese Video Games Gave the World an Extra Life, which is a book uh, by me. Um, it has a forward by Game Life Podcast listener Shuhei Yoshida. That forward references the Game Life Podcast. Uh, so if you want to read somebody talking about the Game Life Podcast, it's right there. In the book. Um, it's a very okay. handsome, very handsome cover. We were talking about it before the podcast. I have to say very, very, it's worth it for the, for the, if you already own the book, um, it's worth picking up. I, I just ordered it myself. It's worth picking up Thank the, uh, the, the, the book for the cover. Very nicely, handsomely designed. It would, it would sit, what did I say? It would sit nicely alongside a copy of, uh, say, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or, or uh, you know, one of those uh, wonderful literary 
it tomes. looks pretty. It looks it's also pretty. a tome. It's also a tome. It is. It's uh, 338 pages, um, which is, uh, I mean, it's not that much longer than the original book. It's just, a, it's another, another one-tenth as long, I think. Um, but it has a new chapter. It's going to be out October 19th. Um, and uh, go check out Amazon. You can see it there. Um, and I'll be at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo that weekend, uh, the 21st to the 23rd. And I'll have copies and I'll sign them and sell them to you and whatever you want to do. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited that... Uh, I'm excited that the actual book is in and it actually looks good and feels good. Let me see. It smells pretty good, too. It smells okay. Yeah, hey, book smells, man. No, what, man. What I'm with you. People like that stuff. I haven't done I it like since I was stuff. a kid, but I did it all the time when I was a kid. It's that kind of the paper and the glue, and it's, you know. You don't, Matt, listen. If you're trying to get me into Persona, I can at least get you into smelling books. Because <laughs> smelling books, I... I, I don't think that's something that you ever should have stopped doing because that is really one of the great pleasures of even adult life. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so power up. It's coming back. Hey, look at that. Um, and uh, I'm just excited to actually have one in my hands. It's nice. Um, so, yeah, um, I'm Chris Kohler, K-O-B-U-N-H-E-A-T. Kobun Heat is my Twitter handle uh, if you want to tweet me. Um, Matt, I know your Twitter handle is a lot easier to remember. Just uh, Matt, my first last name, Matt Peckham, M-A-T-T-P-E-C-K-H-A-M. Um, I think that's it. We covered everything. Wonderful. Great job. Um, so hopefully, Matt, I'll, I'll talk to you next week, which means that all, all these people listening will have a podcast to listen to next week also. Yay. Wouldn't that be great? It would be great, uh, it'd be great for everybody. Yes. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time.